I'm Rachel Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Um, we have a ton of interesting topics to talk about today, um, kind of all over the place, uh, which I think is good. So uh, we're going to start with China and TikTok. Emily's going to talk to us about <laughs> uh, the long arm of Beijing when it comes to TikTok. Um, we're going to flip it over to Ben to talk about the uh, most recent overture uh, in the sort of DHS attack on the political wrong think. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the recent censure by the Republican National Committee of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And then finally, Josh is going to wrap us up with a discussion of sort of where the conservative movement is going on big tech uh, through the lens of a recent paper from the Heritage Foundation. Um, so with that, we'll get started. Uh, Emily, want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, TikTok is, is something that we can't talk about enough, and yet nobody seems to really want to talk about in the context of its parent company. And this conversation will sort of be loosely based on a piece I wrote at The Federalist last week, um, because with the hook of, of Mark Zuckerberg actually citing TikTok in an earnings call that made huge headlines um, as one of the reasons that Facebook has actually lost lost daily users for the first time in its entire history. Facebook is a relatively young company, uh, but not quite as young as TikTok. And it's stunning that this company, um, which is owned by ByteDance, uh, a Beijing company, um, it is stunning the degree to which uh, our children and young adults and even some adults, um, and we've seen all those videos from nurses and teachers and everything over the course of the pandemic, the amount of time that they spend on a platform owned by a nation that is seeking to undermine us is it, it is sort of mind boggling, right? It is the most popular social network. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it sort of depends on how you how, how you count popularity, but the point stands. This is the most popular. This is one of the most popular social networks. It's like three years old, um, and it is it is based in a country that is looking to undermine our culture. And the uh, reality is that ByteDance also owns Douyin, uh, which is the Chinese version of TikTok. Now. Uh, TikTok, it, ByteDance likes to say, is not the, China has no influence over TikTok, right? Like that, that's what they that's what they like to claim. ByteDance, um, by some counts, has a lot of people um, on their own uh, on their own that work at the company that are actually members of the Chinese Communist Party, which is not uncommon in China. We know how the Chinese economy works. The government has uh, pretty much total control that it can choose to exercise whenever it wants over any company that's incorporated there. Um, and so there are all these questions about data and privacy, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that on Douyin, kids have to use a youth filter, um, which literally caps the amount of time they're allowed to spend on TikTok every single day or on Douyin every single day. And it only shows them certain content, some of which is literal CCP propaganda. So the CCP knows how powerful the social media is into shaping the minds of young people, um, both from an addiction standpoint and in a content standpoint. What we're doing over here um, is just letting kids use this cultural tool that is owned literally by Beijing um, at it, it, with these trends, by the way, that are like the WAP, the wonderful uh, song that came out last year, that was one of the top TikTok trends of the year. Uh, so that means you had all kinds of kids watching videos about that, which is extremely explicit, and we won't even get into it here. Um, but this is, the, and that's not allowed in China, right? So they understand the power of this cultural tool, and we are letting them, willingly letting them, uh, shape our young people with this tool. Um, and this isn't to say that the government should should take over TikTok or ban TikTok or whatever, um, but it is to say American parents wake the heck up and understand um, and, and leaders wake the heck up and understand what Beijing is doing to generations of Americans with this app that on average, they probably spend 
more than an hour, if not multiple hours a day using. It's insane. Um, and again, my news hook for this article was Zuckerberg saying, you know, this, this powerful company that is Facebook and that is Meta is actually struggling partially because of TikTok. And that's by his own admission. But this is so much broader and deeper and it is one of the least discussed things uh, in our politics. So I'll throw it up into the group uh, for thoughts on that. I have thoughts on this, <laughs> uh, which will shock no one. But, um, you know, the first thing I will say is like what shocks me most about TikTok is that this is known. It's not like it's a secret that Beijing is the parent company of TikTok. It has come out for now over a year or two, at least, that Beijing harvests the data of every child that uses this from voice recognition to face recognition to off platform information. So whatever's on their phone is being sucked into the TikTok app. So it is, I think, not an overstatement to say it's a surveillance app in a way that a lot of social media is surveillance, but this is surveillance by, you know, an antagonistic foreign power. I don't have that many qualms about the government stepping in and saying this is a problem, uh, particularly when it comes to the fact that this is a Chinese asset, essentially. And, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, we have no, our, our economic policy makes no distinction almost that prepares us to deal with China, which uses, you know, sort of otherwise commercial actors as state actors. There's that fusion that China has that we are unprepared to deal with because we just look at everything as like a market product and not an arm of the Chinese state. Um, and that's a problem. But the second thing I would say is, you know, it's tremendous to me how far this debate has come because, you know, I think when Josh Hawley first got to the Senate, he was introducing bills to ban, you know, infinite scroll and things on social media, right? Every like Reason Magazine, I think, has had him on the cover to bash him like 18,000 times about this saying he's, you know, perpetuating the nanny state, all this stuff. But so many more people are coming around to this idea that these products are addictive, they are harmful to brain development. And there is, of course, a role parents have in this, obviously, right? Like kids have, you know, phones that I think parents need to be aware of. But I think what the criticism of people trying to have this debate never reflects is the fact that social media and phones and all these things are ubiquitous, right? It's not like a video game where you actually have to actively go plug it in. Someone has to purchase it for you. You turn it on. It's, it's much more of a, of a niche activity. Phones and the internet are everywhere. You have really no kind of idea what your kid is doing. And the last thing I'll say is that there also is no product liability here, right? Everything, you know, that we're talking about with parents, yes, they need to be, I think, more engaged and aware of these things. But even if they were able to link, you know, Instagram, as we've seen to like mental health of girls, there's literally no recourse that parents have against these platforms. And so there's no incentive, you know, for them to address these things at all. And a quick piggyback on that, it is also not like uh, tobacco or trans fats that you eat that might be ubiquitous, but that you eat. We have um, transferred our professional, personal, and even religious communication and organizing onto these addictive platforms. Um, and that's, yeah, an important that's a great point to think about. Yeah. So I guess I'll make two quick points where I was going to come back to the big tech topic later on in the show, but two quick points right off the bat um, to Rachel's point about kind of raising children and children's addiction. I was talking with someone on the phone literally last night and she made this exact point. She was basically saying to me like, you know, it's a, it's a thought that I think a lot of parents nowadays have obviously, and I'm not a parent yet. And I, you know, I hopefully one day will be, but like parents nowadays, obviously you're saying to themselves, like, how the hell do I raise my kids? Like when my kids have like 24 seven access to CCP propaganda, pornography, I don't know. I mean, like, I, 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 again, like, not like I've done like the Barnes and Noble bookshopping and trying to find all the right parenting books, that kind of thing yet. But I, I have to imagine like the definitive book on this subject has not been written yet. On the contrary, we're quite literally living through a real world kind of dystopian social experiment to see whether an entire generation or two, millennials and Gen Z, would just be kind of be like irredeemably screwed basically by the proliferation of this. So it is remarkable kind of how much the debate on the right has shifted. Again, we're going to come back to that later in the show. But the second quick point that I'll make and then toss it to Ben to throw uh, or conclude the segment is, you know, Emily says, like, we shouldn't ban it. I, I look, I'll be honest with you. I'm like fairly open to that, to be honest with you. I mean, oh, I, I, again, I'm open to it, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, 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 it depends like what we mean by literally banning. You see, at a bare minimum here, 
it seems to me like public policy should like heavily find creative ways to put its thumb on the scale to disincentivize like Apple and Google from hosting it on their app stores. Um, you know, I'm not a Capitol Hill lawyer, so I don't necessarily know exactly what, the, what that legislation would look like. That might be a slightly more creative way to do it as opposed to kind of an all out ban, but certainly kind of like a deep red state at a state level and kind of the plenary police powers that states largely have. I, you know, I would suggest like a deep red state should probably just throw like a trial balloon piece of legislation out there and just try to ban it for everyone in the state and kind of just see how that goes um, off the judici- of the judicial system. Yeah, I, I look at this from the 30,000 foot perspective of is China engaged in a war against the United States or not? And if we if we agree that China is engaged in a war by other means, thankfully, at least today, I guess, to be the dominant world power to supplant the U.S., ultimately to subjugate us if and when needed, then every single piece of economic of commerce that we have with China, every single asset that China creates that we may or may not use uh, has to be looked at from a national security perspective. And so it's funny, I looked back briefly while the segment was going on, you know, the controversy over President Trump considering an executive order banning TikTok at one time. And it's hilarious to see the civil liberties groups talking about, oh, this is an assault on the First Amendment. Well, you're talking about a CCP tool, which if you think it's only about allowing Americans to proliferate content on it and then hoovering up all manner of information about them that can probably ultimately be used against Americans down the road, you don't think that ultimately they're also going to turn it into a vehicle to promote Chinese propaganda and then suppress anti-CCP messages on it. Of course, that's what this is a vehicle for. It's the same thing that China has done with Hollywood. It's the same thing in every single piece of commerce in exchange that we have with communist China. So I look at this from a just purely national security perspective up front and any entity that operates at the whims of the Chinese Communist Party ultimately must serve the Chinese Communist Party. Period, full stop, before we get into all the downsides of of big tech broadly and these devices that are addictive and shape our brains uh, and cause us to have all sorts of generational problems that we will have, uh, we shouldn't be using any CCP apps, period, full stop. Now, the problem, of course, is that the CCP is so deeply embedded in almost every single aspect of American life that disentangling it as a a practical matter is quite complicated. But I think it's one of the charges of our time to figure out how to do so. Well, with that, Ben, you want to talk to us more about, you know, not China coming after us, but you know, our own government. <laughs> Ourselves coming after us. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the, the themes that I continue to go back to in my writing and thinking is we have a ruling class that consistently seems to kowtow to China, but then also increasingly emulates China as it grasps to retain power over us plebs here in America. And it was interesting to see the Department of Homeland Security issued a new national terrorism advisory bulletin. I think I've read that they've issued five so far under the Biden administration. And this one, it seems like on social media, got a lot of coverage. Uh, but as I've been covering for the last year, this is actually quite consistent with the war on wrong thing that has been ongoing. So I think what caught people's eyes was that the first sentence, the opening sentence of this threat bulletin says this, quote, the United States remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and mal information. MDM is the acronym they've created. Introduced and or amplified by foreign and domestic threat actors. So in other words, Joe Rogan is a potential terrorist. He's a national security threat to the country. Alex Berenson is a national security threat to the country. We on this program, probably in some of the things we say are national security threats to the country. So this started with, you know, Alex Jones gets deplatformed. Then it moves to a president of the United States and members of Congress. Then it moves to, like I said last episode, a pot smoking, tequila swigging, UFC commentating, Bernie Sanders supporting stand-up comedian who, because he attracts a large audience and challenge, and some of his guests challenge the official ruling class narrative, he suddenly becomes a threat to national security. And it goes on to talk about key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment proliferation of false or misleading narratives. And I want to underscore this, which so discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. Now, the institutions themselves, as we've talked about ad nauseum here, have themselves destroyed and completely eroded trust in themselves because they violated that trust. They do not operate in terms of consent of the governed. They operate as not our servants, but as our masters. 
today. And set that aside for a second. This language parallels what I've harped on here before, the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism that the Biden administration put out. And I believe June of last year, where it talked about the fact that the long term contributors to terrorism in this country included misinformation and disinformation and called on all federal agencies, as well as big tech and beyond to actively combat misinformation and disinformation. And of course, the administration itself has pressed on TV companies, on big tech and beyond to try and crush anyone who dares engage in dangerous wrong things. So you can draw a direct line uh, between the rhetoric of the administration, its national strategy for countering domestic terrorism and all the themes that we've talked about in the past when it comes to any any criticism of the draconian covid policies, any criticism with respect to, of course, election integrity. And this document, of course, goes on to talk about uh, false or misleading narratives about unsubstantiated election fraud posing a risk. It talks about opposition to covid-19 vaccine and mask mandates and a new one, which we'll see how this develops over time. Opposition to resettlement of Afghan nationals as a potential driver of domestic terror. So if you engage in wrong think on immigration, you, too, may be a domestic terrorist. So I want to link this chilling of speech, this effort at essentially imposing kind of a prior restraint on free speech in this country and this Orwellian document. Let's also note a few other things that this comes up against. We, we got a report from Politico saying that the House Inspector General is weighing an insider threat program in Congress, which might engage in behavioral monitoring to identify and deter internal threats within the House. These types of programs, according to this article, have in other circumstances included even tracking every single keystroke of employees on their federal government computers. And this obviously comes on the heels, of course, of reports about Capitol cops probing lawmakers and their visitors as potential threats. Allegations that recently arose from Texas Congressman Troy Nels about Capitol cops investigating his office. And then allegations as well yesterday, I believe, from his colleague, Congressman Willie Gomert, saying that the DOJ had tampered with mail sent to him by private citizens. So it, this, I think, perfectly reflects the chilling, disturbing, anti-American CCP-like crackdown on dissent in this country against normal citizens, everyday citizens, as well as their political representatives. And once again, the question that I always come back to is, is this a reflection of strength or weakness at the end of the day? Is this the last gasp of the ruling class? Or is this just one more kind of a ratchet in their campaign to basically destroy and chill their political opposition? I'm curious what the what the group thinks about that. Well, I mean, I think it's obviously a political attack. And I think, you know, you've pointed out how it's been ramped up, right, from from just the Alex Jones and Laura Loomers of the world to I think that my read of this DHS thing is that it literally encompasses members of Congress, like members of Congress will be swept in as domestic terrorists. And I'm sorry, members of Congress fund this organization. And that's like what's kind of shocking to me about it. I was talking to some congressional staff this morning. And now that the news is public, that there's a, an agreement on the omnibus spending bill, the terms of this uh, massive spending bill that they're going to be taking up in as soon as next month. Uh, if our guys aren't pushing back on these things under that spending bill and protect, you know, actually acting like they have power here because they do, they oversee these agencies who are calling them terrorists and apparently giving the intelligence community and local law enforcement justification to go after people for thinking this way, then I'm not sure what our politics are useful for anymore on the, on the right if we can't stand up and say this uh, when we have the leverage to do it. So I'm just throwing that out there that... Uh, Everything Ben said is correct, but we now have a chance to make the rubber meet the road on this question. And if Republicans in the Congress aren't prepared to do it, I don't know what their point is. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll jump in. This is kind of related to like a long running strand of thought that I've had for a while now. And it's something that I have this 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 one, you know, we, all of us on this podcast obviously have a lot of kind of like right wing group chats, but kind of like my go to kind of like based right wing lawyer group chat. We've discussed this ad infinitum. So I kind of would like to kind of get everyone's thoughts here. So. One thing that I've written about a lot is kind of free speech, right? And, and how conservatives should actually be free speech and kind of the upshot of what I suggest common good originalism supports on free speech grounds 
it's actually not free speech absolutism, right? It's actually something more analogous to the Sam Alito dissent in the Snyder versus Phelps case, basically kind of affixing kind of a moral valuation to speech. This is kind of, I think, the Alexander Hamilton position going back to the Federalist Party. Um, it's certainly the position of kind of uh, Harry Jaffa, Hadley Arkies, and some of our Straussian friends, more generally speaking here. The intellectual tension, the one that I have, I'm still kind of teasing out in real time is how I reconcile that with what I think are appropriate public policies and kind of the big tech space that kind of empirically amount to a default position of near free speech absolutism. And I guess the reality is some ways being conservative, being an act on being, being kind of a true conservative necessarily, I think means that we live in the real world where kind of the empirical realities of the daily situations simply have to take precedence over kind of felty or loyalty to kind of abstract principles or abstract dogma or kind of, you know, dusty old books that we might've read decades and decades ago. So I, 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 I don't know, I'm kind of just rambling at this point, but I guess like in, in an ideal world, okay, where like the tech platforms were, act, were acting with like a modicum of sanity, you know, I wouldn't be like throwing up my arms necessarily if someone like an Alex Jones or Nick Fuentes were banned. Again, like if we actually had like moralistic, virtuous censors, people who actually could properly, they were properly educated, they had the right value system, and they could actually be tasked with affixing moral valuations as to what was happening there. But we just don't live in that world. Like, you know, the Birkenstock wearing dweebs and Silicon Valley do not have that background. They want us ostracized. They, are, they want us subjugated and they want us out. So as an empirical reality, I think we simply have to kind of default to a position of kind of effectively free speech absolutism because, you know, this notion of the slippery slope. I mean, I certainly was not prescient enough back in 2017 when people started banning Alex Jones. I, I did not stand up for him at that time. I don't think any of us did, honestly, or, or very few maybe. But the reality now, like, you know, four and a half, five years after that is genuinely harrowing. And I think it compels us to necessarily take a deeply kind of pragmatic, empirical, dirty approach in favor of near free speech absolutism, even if kind of our more abstract principles might militate in a different direction. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. And it, it may not even have to be dirty because in some cases, these new constructs and these these hypermodern constructs don't jive with what was laid out, even in an originalist sort of interpretation of our Constitution and the laws downstream of it that have come through the court system and through legislation. Um, and, you know, th this is not th there's no way in heck. And, and people always say this when, in the debate about originalism that, um, you know, there's no way the founders could have envisioned what what we've become thus we must you know reinterpret and, and change the constitution and, and that's not what i'm saying but i am saying there is no way in heck the founders could have envisioned the world that we live in um right now there's just there's there's simply no way um even the jetsons sort of 60 years ago was getting it wrong um in in some you know in, in interesting ways and so i think you know we don't have the legal structure to understand what's happening right now um it, it doesn't fit very well. Um, and, and that's sort of generally, I think, an important point in this in this vein, um, because we don't ex our constitution doesn't exist for a society that doesn't share a, a label as to what constitutes bigotry and terrorism. Um, so if the government is going to weaponize uh, the terrorism label, you should have an informed press and citizenry standing up against that. But because so many people um, in the press and now in the, the broader public are sort of sympathetic to that idea that their their fellow citizens are, are domestic terrorists for disagreeing with them. Um, this idea, like we just don't have shared values. We don't have shared definite. We don't have shared values. So we don't have shared definitions. And uh, this is a problem that's very much downstream of it, um, and I think speaks to that much, much deeper issue. So I'm going to take us in a little bit of a different direction, although not, I guess, that different, but and talk about um, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, two people who I think would actually like to see some Republicans labeled domestic terrorists from everything I can tell. Um, so I, I'm sure every, well, if you're sort of paying attention to politics, you're aware of, of these two figures. Uh, in the Republican Party who have sort of turned their back on Republicans and have been uh, actively working with Democrats on the January 6th Select Committee to, for lack of a better word, persecute their own party. And over the weekend, the Republican National Committee approved a bunch of resolutions, one of which essentially censured, well, essentially did censure uh, Cheney and Kinzinger for actions that they took um, or that they are taking on behalf of the January 6th committee and also said they would, you know, urged other, you know, elements of the party not to support them as members of the Republican Party. Now, 
this has since been distorted by sort of the mainstream narrative uh, and, and establishment Republicans in two different ways. Um, the first is that, you know, we're seeing just this absolute apoplectic response to the phraseology of January 6th as legitimate political discourse, which is what uh, the resolution itself s- says. Now, I think, you know, obviously, in my take anyway, what the resolution is referring to is the mass amount of people that were there that didn't reach the Capitol, right? I don't think anyone's defending the people that went into the Capitol, but that's just, you know, that seems like a reasonable interpretation. But the second way this is becoming distorted, I think is even more important, which is this idea that what the RNC is doing is somehow punishing Cheney and Kinzinger for just thoughts, right? For disagreement, for difference of opinion. And you, you've seen everybody say this from Mitt Romney to Ben Sass to uh, Senator Bill Cassidy to Senator Mitch McConnell, who yesterday, we're recording this on a Wednesday and Tuesday, went to the Senate floor and you know said, oh, this is terrible. We should be punishing members for disagreeing. Let's be clear about something. They are not, this is not a difference of ideology. This is not over a difference of opinion. This is about actions that both Cheney and Kinninger are taking in direct opposition, in actual attempting to harm their own party. And by this, I mean specifically their service on the January 6th Select Committee, which they are not doing at, you know, at the request of their own party. If you recall, uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, offered Republicans to serve on this committee. He offered Jim Jordan of Ohio and Jim Banks of Indiana. Pelosi took the unprecedented step of saying, no, no, Republicans, you cannot appoint your own members and banned that, you know, those two from serving, which led McCarthy to say, fine, then we're out. Right. Why would we participate in a committee where we can't like every other committee in the Congress where we pick our own members? And so instead, Pelosi herself reached out to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. So they are serving at the request of the Democratic Speaker of the House. And more than that, they are participating in activities that, again, scrap all sort of standards of behavior uh, and investigatory tactics, including, you know, demanding text messages and records from their own colleagues. And they've set the committee up in such a way that should their colleagues not comply, it's it's they've already voted to ref- make criminal contempt referrals to the Department of Justice for other people who have not complied. Um, Steve Bannon, uh, a couple of people from the Department of Justice under consideration right now for Mark Meadows. It is not out of the realm of possibility that they would seek criminal referral against their own colleagues, which has never been done as, as far as I can tell, never been done. So, again, this is not a difference of opinion. This, these are actions being taken. And so to me, what happened with the RNC is actually not uh, this sort of you know, hyper-partisan, irrational action that it's being painted, I mean, we're punishing people for wrong think. It is a completely rational response from a party organization to people within that party that clearly are acting against it. They, they are, are do, seeking tangible harm to the party that they also, at the same time, seek shelter and comfort under. You don't get to do that in politics. <laughs> you just don't. And so I think it's completely appropriate what the RNC did. Um, the, the, the honest thing at this point, if you want to do this much damage to your own party, is that you just switch parties, right? You just become a Democrat. And because that's what opposition parties do to each other. Um, and so I, I just really wanted to clarify this distinction that I think is really important. That this is not about, you know, thinking or, or having a disagreement. This is about actual tactical, tangible harm being done. So I open it up for debate on this point because, you know, reasonable people do disagree about these things. So I don't know if y'all do. But- Rachel, you're taking away from them the one thing that makes them special, um, which is that they're Republicans who are behaving right. like Democrats. Um, <laughs> and, and that is why uh, they, they, uh, they will never switch parties because it's too uh, delicious. Um, and it's really the only reason that Adam Kinzinger gets any attention in the media whatsoever. Um, and I thought the, the uh, dust up over the entire legitimate discourse question was awful because if you were interpreting it um the way that i think you know it it obviously meant um if you weren't interpreting it that way you were acting in bad faith but what is so depressing is that a lot of these people weren't acting in bad faith they just have been so deluded um so deluded by media coverage that has blurred the very important distinction um between the i was reporting on it the like 
huge crowd of people that gathered for the ellipse and the big but not nearly as big crowd of people that trespassed on the cap uh, trespassed on the capitol grounds and then entered the capitol there's a huge distinction there were a lot of good uh patriotic people that were gathered in washington dc that day and the distinction absolutely matters because the lack of distinction has roped all of those people into the subpoenas not all of them but many of people many of the people from the good group into those subpoenas and into these investigations um there there are stunning examples of people who were not inside of the capitol um, and who are not planning things who have had their privacy breached and who have been identified with the people that did commit terrorism some of them had their lives ruined not terrorism literally had had their lives ruined Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the distinction absolutely matters. But I think the fact that, you know, besides the people who were obviously acting in bad faith, the Adam Kinzinger's and the Liz Cheney's of the world, um, the people who honestly have just who interpreted that in some sort of malicious way, although I went and looked at how it was written, it was completely fair. It was a completely fair point. And if you don't, if you're interpreting that in a malicious way, um, and, and you know, not because you're intentionally acting in bad faith or you're some sort of operative, but just because you think you want, you want to be reasonable, capital R and a defender of capital D democracy. Um, and, and you have lost the nuance in that very important distinction that speaks to a much that, that's, that is the problem is the fact that the mm-hmm. media has eliminated the distinction to the point where it doesn't exist meaningfully anymore. And it does have a lot of meaning. Um, so the, the whole thing is just depressing. Yeah, let me just say that the lack of distinction is willful, it's intentional, it's purposefully malicious because it goes to a point that, you know, sort of sort of um, tinges the prior segment that I did, which is that half the country constitutes domestic terrorists or their co-conspirators haters, abettors, enablers. That's all point. And not only half the country, but also members of Congress uh, who stood with them in challenging the first mass mail-in election in American history. Uh, and by the way, the Mark Eliases of the world, and not just him, but also Democrat members of Congress, are seeking to actually disqualify from the ballots and maybe even not see it Republicans, dozens and dozens of Republicans who dared to ask anything about the 2020 election. So there's a real far-reaching effect of this. But I think to go back to the point about the text itself, the text talks about the committees, the January 6th committees, which is the major subject of this, disregard for minority rights, traditional checks and balances, due process, and adherence to other precedents and rules of the U.S. House. And then a couple clauses down, it says that Cheney and Kinzinger are participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse using their past professed political affiliation to mask Democrat abuse of prosecutorial power for partisan purposes. Of course, it's not talking about people smashing windows inside the Capitol. It's a willful misrepresentation of it by design. Emily's absolutely right. It's it's obviously a, a bad faith effort. And I think it's a joke to go back to the main point of this. Like these people are actively working against your political party and trying to railroad and serving the efforts of a totalitarian left that that wants to gulag half the country. How could you possibly not censure them? Um, so thank, thanks to the RNC for actually showing that it has at least a, a modicum of understanding of what time it is. So I don't have a whole lot to add. I agree with what all three of you has, have said here. The only thing that I'll kind of add quickly at the end of this segment before transitioning is, uh, I mean, what about like Mitch McConnell's reaction to this, right? I mean, what about Mitch McConnell referring to this, um, just using using the language of, of the MSNBC talking head crowd? I mean, literally using the the dreaded I word, not impeachment, but insurrection. Um, I, I, I thought that was wild, honestly. I mean, like, look, I, I mean, I come from kind of a, you know, now I'm a little more full spectrum, I guess, but like my route to the conservative movement is kind of through like the FedSock legal world. And I have so many friends who kind of just nerd out and dork out over like, you know, like Mitch McConnell, like how tough is he? He confirms all the judges. And it's like, dude, like open your freaking eyes. Okay. Like this is still Mitch McConnell at the end of the day here. Rachel's the last person in the world who needs to kind of hear this, obviously, but you know, just the way that he kind of punched back here and, um, you know, criticized, uh, the RNC and said how it was actually like an insurrection. I, I, I thought that was kind of like a clown nose back on moment, like, a, you know, like take off the blinders and like, this is really who you're getting. It was it was it was a reminder that Mitch McConnell really is all along who he actually has been. And 
honestly, I mean, like, we'll see. I mean, like if Republicans retake the House this year, I mean, I, it's hard to be particularly bullish that McConnell might be deposed as Senate Majority Leader, who's obviously kind of had that position, that sinecure, we might say, for a very long time now. But at a bare minimum, I think the reaction to the RNC report kind of should bring conservatives back to a point of sobriety, especially now where we're not kind of confirming judges over and over again as to who Mitch McConnell actually is. Um, but on that note, does anyone have any parting thoughts there before transitioning? Or Nope. Okay, so let's... Um, Let's kind of go full circle here. So we kind of opened this particular episode talking about uh, TikTok and uh, big tech and infinite scroll and all you know, parenting and, and the age of uh, digital obsession and all that stuff. So an interesting report um, came out earlier this week from um, the Heritage Foundation. It was written by Kara Frederick, who I certainly have known from a long time social media. I assume at least Rachel knows her in person. I, I honestly am not sure if I've met her. But anyway, very long kind of white paper entitled, quote, Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, A Roadmap. Um, I, I knew this is coming. You know, I, I, Kevin Roberts and some of our other friends over there kind of had, had flagged me as this is coming. I was very excited for it. I have not had time quite yet to kind of comb it over with quite the fine tooth comb that I assume Rachel has. So I'm going to defer to her on some various levels of policy specificity. But to the extent that I've had time to look it over, there's a lot to praise in here, obviously. Um, you know, Heritage Foundation, I think for for years and years, like a lot of other kind of institutions of, of the conservative movement, certainly uh, was, was taking kind of big tech money. Um, you know, I think uh, Kay Cole James and kind of her final couple of years there started to kind of get that back out the door. Um, and in fact, and it ultimately kind of results in, in kind of a vow to not take big tech money. And I think we're starting to see the results of that. And, uh, you know, there's there are certainly some points in here that I've noticed that we might quibble with. Um, you know, they advocate for a for a codification into law of the consumer welfare standard. Um, I have mixed thoughts on that myself. I think Rachel does as well here. But at a bare minimum, that's not kind of going like the full Josh Hawley, so to speak. That's not really going kind of the full kind of Lena Khan against Amazon big is bad conclusion. It's kind of treading more of like a Mike Lee-esque middle ground we might see or we might say, but there's still there's still a lot in here to commend. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric about kind of enforcing antitrust, which obviously kind of defies right out of kind of like right liberal libertarian orthodoxy. Just today, we're recording this on Wednesday, I saw that Cato came out here uh, criticizing Heritage's report. One thing that was particularly interesting, this is kind of where I, I want to take my opening remarks here, is that Fox News did like a little write up of the report and both Kevin Roberts, who's the president of Heritage and Kara in their comments to Fox News. I noticed that you actually use the rhetoric of the common good in kind of um, a, a, the specific terminology of the common good in describing what they were doing. So uh, Dr. Roberts says, quote, every single American should be concerned by big tech's manipulation of the free market to exploit consumers, censor conservatives, target children, expand chilling surveillance programs and selectively limit access to the modern public square. It's going to take all of us to fight back against big tech and ensure these companies are held to account for their unchecked, flagrant abuses of power and undermining of the common good. And similarly, Kara says that, quote, corporations do not have the right to undermine the basic values and rights that make our republic the beacon of freedom and opportunity that it is today, nor should they be allowed to undermine the common good by manipulating the very system that has enriched them in the first place. So, those, you know, those are kind of like NACON new right buzzwords there, right? So I guess kind of the broader point that I want to make here, if you kind of take this report and you kind of view it side by side with Justice Thomas's separate writing in the Knight First Amendment case from last April, which we did an entire kind of special uh, podcast episode on, where he kind of um, kind of suggests that common carrier regulation might actually be the solution to, to some of our big tech woes here. It really does seem like a seismic shift at this point has taken in the big tech discussion. I mean, you can go back to kind of those bills that Rachel mentioned earlier when Josh Hawley was a freshman senator a few months in talking about like infinite scroll and people were like, dude, like what the hell are you talking about here? But three years later, it really does seem like there has been a massive, massive shift in how kind of the right of center firmament views big tech here. And I guess kind of the final kind of thing that I'll say on this is it kind of does make you wonder how some of kind of the more venerable, longer standing institutions of the conservative movement are ultimately going to deal with a lot of this kind of more like nationalist populist energy. Right. And it does seem like uh, at, a, at a bare minimum kind of absorbing some of our ideas and our intellectual momentum and our, our, our fervor by a process of slow osmosis definitely could take place and to an extent at least is already taking place here. But um, I'll kind of get my soapbox on that note. Uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll give you the first word. <laughs> well, I think your last point is, is extremely well taken in the sense that I think, you know, what this heritage paper represents is that shift, you know, of not just this sort of, you know, 
small group of thinkers on the right, but like really the institutions of the right are waking up not just to the big tech threat, but how to deal with corporate power. And I think that's just a shift, a paradigm shift that, you know, a lot of us have been sort of arguing for, but really hasn't manifested, I think, in the, in the institutional way. And what Heritage put out is really tremendous uh, to, in, in that regard. And I think what Kara did, Kara did really well in that paper is she just gave example after example after example that, look, we come to this honestly, right? It's not, it, it, corporate power has been wielded against the right in such so many significant ways that, you know, this is, this is now necessitating a response. And I think that she does a really good job of outlining like how we, how we came to this point. Like this is not just a made up boogeyman threat, which is what half of, you know, sort of the libertarian right likes to say. And speaking of that, you know, how you kind of know it's a, it, it, it is a sea change is the response from some of the more libertarian elements of the right. So you have the Cato Institute, you have some of the Koch um, sort of funded groups that are just having a complete and total meltdown. I mean, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to engage this paper's ideas. It's no, it's literally like tantrums. <laughs> and so that speaks, I think, to how the dynamic is shifting. Um, you know, and I, it, you know, we can debate the merits of the paper, I think, in a different forum. But I will say, I do think it's a really, really comprehensive look uh, at the problem and an attempt to take it on in a, in a really serious way. And I'm encouraged by that. That's And so that's just like a big deal in and of itself, uh, right? That that it exists. And that's sort of what Josh and Rachel were talking about. But I think it's, um, I asked Jessica Anderson of Heritage Action last week. Um, she was on Federalist Radio Hour uh, and that released this week. I asked, you know, now that it's been the relationship between the conservative movement and big tech. It's not what it was, you know, in t between 2012 and 2016, you know, at CPAC where Facebook and Google were sponsors and throwing these crazy parties that everybody was just conservatives were just gushing over them and gushing over Uber and all of these people. Um, I asked if the, the break in that relationship has allowed them um, to sort of be liberated um, to an extent from the money. So just there's a, the ideological level and there's the financial level and they obviously uh, overlap in ways that can be uh, very dangerous, but has it? And I think the answer is clearly just a resounding yes, um, that big tech, and I think this is, it didn't have to be this way, uh, but there's sort of little millennial um, like woke police that they hired and, and let in the gate um, through this Trojan horse of, of merit. Um, they, they now have run their companies and have shattered their relationship with the right, which was a defender of, uh, and for some very legitimate reasons, of the free enterprise system that allowed these companies to flourish. And they squandered that completely um, because they they enabled the sort of contempt that exists for the rest of the country to run their operations and their organizations. So I think the right, um, I mean, the fact that this is coming from heritage, like we're not talking about a smaller group, we're talking about heritage um so you're always going to have your Cato's. you're always going to have reason magazine you're always going to have our street um but the fact that this is coming from heritage that is an extremely encouraging uh an encouraging sign and the fact that josh and rachel and, and presumably ben um agree that this is sort of substantively good and not just superficially good because there are a lot of people on the right who superficially talk a big game about big tech and then don't want to do anything meaningful um, and, and don't have proposals that are actually meaningful. That's a really big deal. Uh, generally speaking, I, I agree with uh, the sentiment here that this is something of a watershed and the language is telling as is the substance. And one of the things that I noted off the bat was that uh, in President Kevin Roberts's, I guess, preamble to it, he called big tech the enemy of the people. Uh, and I think that that is an accurate that is an accurate uh, way to capture what we're dealing with when you have these platforms that are effectively instruments of the ruling class used to pursue the ruling class's agenda of you know, censoring their opponents, uh, smearing and maligning them and you know, allowing the narrative to proliferate and nothing else to compete with it. So on the, on the merits, it's good. On the politics, it's good. And I think from an even broader perspective, it's, more, it's, it's even more important looking at the long-term trends to see if established conservative, and then I, I, though I don't expect this to happen, establishment institutions 
over you know the next the coming months and beyond are going to tailor their policy agendas, their messaging, the, but the, the rhetoric and the policy to where actual Republican voters are, because the the elected political establishment, obviously, there remains a massive chasm between them and actual voters. But to the degree to which some of the other institutions move and start to orient themselves towards where voters actually are in this country, which I think is much more on the nationalist, populist, conservative uh, space um, that will ultimately bubble up, I would hope, to our political representatives. So uh, I guess this is one of those rare times where, where there's some real optimism to be drawn from this episode. We're not always black pilled around here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, no, like it's a, it's a legitimate thing to be happy about. So <laughs> yeah, every 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 so often we're capable of a white pill. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So any final thoughts on that? I think we can open up uh, for final thoughts and 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 go around uh, on that. I'll, I can start. I actually wanted to pick up probably to the shock of no one um, on the last point Josh made about Mitch McConnell. You guys know I just can't resist. It's like bait for me, but. Um, Josh was saying something about, you know, McConnell adopting the language of, you know, insurrection, all these things. What was interesting to me about when he did that, I assume there's a couple of motivations, right? He may actually believe it, but this is a man who actually has no principles. His only principle is power. So that's how you need to view every action he takes. And in this sense, the fact that the RNC is weighing in on congressional activity is a huge threat. Uh, to the congressional leadership in a way that, you know, they've never had to deal with before because the RNC in previous iterations, and even this one has just always been obedient to sort of whatever the congressional leadership decides. But if this is an RNC that is going to be more independent uh, in pushing back uh, and being responsive in many ways to the Republican base, because I think that's what the RNC was really doing here, then that is a huge threat uh, to the party establishment. And so I do think that there's a little bit of that tension underlying uh, where Mitch McConnell was going with some of these comments. So I just had to put that out there. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> I want to say something briefly about the, the violent insurrection comment as well. I think anyone who adopts that language, who endorses that sort of view is a tacit, if not even a, a, a per, an outright proponent of the idea that anyone who gets labeled an insurrectionist when it comes to members of Congress or, of course, former President Trump ought to be disqualified under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And I just want to underscore that point, even if it's purely put out there as SOP by Mark Elias and you know the opinion page of the Washington Post and Lawfare and all of these other leftist organizations engaging in lawfare against us, it is clear that that language, and by the way, that language was bubbling up in terms of the language of insurrection and disqualifying Republicans before January 6th last year. Take a look, Bill Pascrell, a Democrat member of the House from my home state of New Jersey, uh, put out this piece talking about disqualifying uh, over 120 Republican members of the House who dared to challenge the integrity of the 2020 election. Uh, this is this is a real facet now of political life, which is that the people who want to preserve and protect, defend our democracy actually want to disenfranchise, not just disenfranchise, but disqualify representatives of tens of millions of Americans that they can't even be on the ballot. That is where this is ultimately leading. And again, even if this is just an attempt to shift the Overton window to make the invocation of the 14th Amendment, Section three, something that is not completely fringe in our politics, we're, we've We've already crossed a very scary Rubicon, but anyone who raises that language of insurrection, which is totally inapt to what transpired that day, they are effectively endorsing disqualifying dozens and dozens of Republicans. I remember when I interviewed, uh, I think at the time, the CEO of Parler last year, um, you know, there are a lot of questions you can ask the CEO of Parler uh, that get to the heart of uh, some of our big issues today. And I, I think I asked some of them. I, I certainly had Rachel help me a little bit um, in perhaps a breach of journalistic ethics. Um, but no, I just wanted to know like some, I, I, I'm not a, an expert on these issues. But um, one thing that occurred to me is conservatives who have come to Parler's defense reasonably so in the, in the defense of competitors who are experimenting uh, in the free market to see if the experiment can play out successfully like Rumble. Um, 
there's another question about uh, whether these platforms are addicting and healthy that should be asked. And it's interesting because um, conservatives are trying to build their own platforms. And in the case of uh, Parler and in the case of Rumble, they are basically trying to mimic the technology and the, the improvement on it is just that it's open to free expression. Huge improvement. But um, you know, what, what is making us divided and unhealthy and then unhappy, as we talked about in last week's episode about the liberalism's unhappiness problem, um, is the way these platforms are designed. It, it, is their, it is the technology in and of itself. It's not just that the technology is anti-American, it is the technology. Um, it, it is that we don't need a conservative or we don't need a classically liberal TikTok. We don't need a classically liberal YouTube. We don't need a classically liberal uh, Twitter, although I think it, at this point, yes, we do just to sort of challenge uh, the free market. But if those things are going to exist, um, they also to be more competitive should be less addicting. They should be more healthy. Um, and so as we look forward and as Josh said, we aren't totally blackpilled all the time for good reason, because, you know, Rumble put an offer out to Joe Rogan and, um, you know, there are different platforms popping up that are, are really optimistic, that, that are actual causes for optimism. Um, but one thing we need to remember is that these technologies are problematic in and of themselves, and they are, I believe, the fundamental uh, the fundamental problem um, is is the sort of what the technology that moder modernity hath wrought um, and the ideology, the postmodern ideology and this technology go hand in hand. So if we're going to improve on the ideology, we need to make sure the technology is downstream of that improve as well. So I'll, I'll just spend a couple minutes on something entirely unrelated. Um, so uh, about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, by the time this podcast's release came out, uh, Amnesty International released a report kind of mirroring the language of a group that calls itself Human Rights Watch from about a year or two ago, um, calling uh, Israel in a quote unquote apartheid state. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. because It's not really worth engaging all too much on the merits. The, the report kind of gives away the game when it says that starting in 1948, Israel was an apartheid state, not 1967. Um, for those of you who need like a very brief refresher. So Israel was founded in May of 1948. Um, there was obviously immediately a war with the invading Arab armies and they reached kind of an armistice line, um, you know, the so-called green line separating kind of uh, the West Bank from um, the non-West Bank part of Israel, for lack of a better term. Um, and then that was the state of things until the Six Day War of 1967. So effectively, what the report is saying is that even when Israel had literally zero anything to do whatsoever um, with the West Bank, it was already an apartheid state. So they give away the game right there. The, the broader point that I want to make here, um, which is slightly related to this, is that I think it's time for those of us on the right to basically just stop engaging with institutions like this that are just so bought off by kind of the hegemonic woke ideology. And it's not just about Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, these quote unquote venerable, quote unquote human rights institutions. We can look kind of at the domestic sphere. I mean, think about like the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center or the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, all of these kind of organizations that once might have had like a claim to like a certain kind of level of cachet from like 50, 60 years ago. I mean, even the NAACP, obviously, right? I mean, an organization that's different, something entirely different 50, 60 years ago during like the lunch counter protests in North Carolina, Alabama, then it does now. Obviously, the United Nations as well. I mean, to kind of go back to what I was saying earlier back on the judicial nominations world, I have plenty of like Republican Capitol Hill staffers who when the ABA, the American Bar Association, you know, when, if they'll shockingly say that like that the Republican nominee is well qualified, they'll get on TV and social media and go like, oh, our nominee is well qualified. Dude, stop playing that game. Like you have to just like unilaterally across the board, stop praising these captured institutions when they happen to redound to their interest because the institutions are just totally captured by this ideology that at a fundamental level just hates us and wants us out. So I kind of connect the dots there in a weird way between organizations as like seemingly disparate as like the ABA, the ADL, the SPLC and Amnesty International, because we should just honestly just not engage with them. I think it's truly just not worth acknowledging them. Um, we published a bunch of op-eds on this topic nonetheless in Newsweek because it makes for fun reading. But um, from a conservative perspective, I increasingly think it's just simply not worth engaging with fundamentally bad faith arguments like this. Well, on that note, another riveting episode <laughs> covering all kinds of topics. Uh, so on behalf of Ben, Josh, Emily, I'm Rachel Bovard, and we will see you on the next NetCon Squad.